Everybody thinks we're on the mother. Who are they to judge us? Mother, mother, simply calls me where I hell on the mother. and gentlemen is one of the most beautiful mysterious protest songs you're ever going to hear that's Marvin Gaye the song's called Inner City Blues in parentheses make me want to holler yeah there's so much that makes me want to holler throw up both my hands personally as is often the case, I seem to be avoiding the the worst of it. <clears throat> um, not even the worst of it. I'm avoiding pretty much all of it. Uh, I'm sitting in a pine grove next to a big lake in northern Montana. No sign of coronavirus or inner city blues or poverty or violence or despair nowhere around me but I know it's out there and I know it's growing I know people are looking down the road a month two months and they're wondering how they're going to pay their rent they've lost their jobs the restaurant's not opening up again Don't know if they're going to be able to send their kids to school. Probably not. Or are they going to risk their lives so they can send their kids to school so they can go back to work at the chicken processing plant or the lumber yard or wherever it is they're working. These are strange moments, strange days, very strange days. And, uh, I don't know, it just seemed like a good opportunity to check in with you, play some music, and uh, just rant out my ass, which is why this is a Roma episode. It's been a long time, and when, it, uh, when a long time goes by, I kind of feel like I, uh, I don't know, I, the muscle atrophies or something, I kind of feel like, oh, I don't know, I don't really have anything important to say, and, and I don't, I don't claim that anything I say is important, but... I've been getting a lot of emails from people saying, hey, where's Aroma? Let's, let's hear from you. What's What are your thoughts on what's going on in the world? Uh, and I guess another reason I've been hesitant to do it is that I'm as overwhelmed as anyone else. It's strange, you know, because... Um, when I'm in touch, when I, you know, like when I was in Colorado, I had Wi-Fi, and I spent a good, I don't know, three hours a day probably, um, reading the news, watching YouTube clips of uh, 
The View and David Pakman and uh, even you know NBC Nightly News to see what the normies are saying and thinking and um, I was really in touch uh, trying to stay current with exactly what was happening because I feel like you know we're just living through this incredible historical moment it's kind of incumbent upon us to pay attention uh and also just animal um vigilance you know if if there's a storm on the horizon i want to i want to know i want to be able to pack up and get out of the way and um warn my loved ones and um anyway the my point is that you know out here in the woods uh, I go for days. I haven't had a uh, phone connection for two or three days now. And uh, in a day or two, I'll drive down to Kalispell and find a cafe. And or, Actually, better, I'll find this. Uh, there's a brew pub there where I worked uh, a couple of weeks ago, Bias Brewing. I'll go back to Bias Brewing and I'll sit down to a pint of unfiltered hazy IPA and I'll uh, I'll upload this and I'll look at the news and what I'll see very likely because I've been down this road before is that really nothing's changed since three four five six days ago it's all the same shit it's all the same liars telling the same lies it's the same half-assed going through the motions of governing to call the United States government incompetent right now would be a huge, generous compliment. It's not incompetent. It's non-existent. It's... I honestly feel that so much of what's happening right now has been happening, has been growing um, since the 1980s, since 1980, when Ronald Reagan was elected. I've, I've said this before on the podcast, but it really bears saying again, especially for those of you who weren't alive then or, or were too young to notice what was going on. But there was a real crossroads in American history. And it kind of goes back to when that song was written makes me want to holler that that was written probably 1968 69 somewhere around there uh he's singing about the civil rights movement he's singing about the exploitation of uh, black americans and poor americans um growing up without opportunity and then given a gun and sent off to a foreign land to die uh bills piling up you can't get out from under them the natural fact is I can't pay my taxes. That's not accidental. When people say, you know, the Civil War was fought to end slavery, I just... It was. But slavery didn't end. For a very brief period, there were some opportunities for former slaves, freed slaves, to own land, and then the land was taken from them. They never got their 40 acres and a mule. And the sad fact is that... I tried to write about this in Civilized to Death. For the vast majority of human beings who have ever been alive, slavery 
is home. Slavery is what life is what you can expect from life. I was reading, uh, I'm right in the middle right now of a book called Against the Grain by James Scott, who's a historian at Yale. I quoted him quite extensively in Civilized to Death from his earlier book, The Art of Not Being Governed, which is fantastic about um, people and places around the world where people would flee the growing uh, states and civilizations. And the reason they fled these civilizations is that civilizations were slavery operations. Scott argues that around 75% of all the people who have ever lived have been slaves. Now, hunter-gatherers weren't slaves. But some pre-state societies uh, did have slavery, did practice slavery. Many North American Indian tribes, for example, would enslave captured women and children, sometimes men. They normally killed the men or tortured them, but uh, tortured them to death. Um, but they, uh, which was a great honor, by the way, very strange. Uh, if you look at the traditions of the, you know, the Mohawk, the Iroquois Nation, uh, various tribes, the Hurons, the Ojibwe, the, uh, particularly Indians who lived in sort of the forests, the deciduous forests of um, what's now New England, New York, Pennsylvania, Ontario, uh, Quebec. There was a lot of that. Um, but but the point is that in these societies, slaves were generally incorporated into the society quickly. So uh, a captured woman, an enslaved woman, would quickly marry someone and then her children were just considered part of the tribe. What Scott's arguing is that the slave raiding operations, which were ubiquitous in early state societies in Mesopotamia and China and elsewhere, um, were needed to feed the machine of the state, which needed human labor. And so, of course, that's one of the reasons that birth rate rockets uh, as soon as uh, any sort of incipient state is formed, because the state itself needs that labor in order to prosper and grow and replicate and expand and all these things that states love to do as any living thing does. Um, so the idea of liberating slaves and, and the idea that uh, you know slavery is a thing of the past kind of makes me want to holler because it's not. If you are working two jobs, living in a fucking rented 500-square-foot apartment with your two kids, and you're not getting by, and you've got student loan debt maybe, and you're wondering how the hell you're going to get from one day to another, you're essentially a slave. This is a slave state. And the fruit of our toil, the fruit, and I say our, you know, I've been very, very lucky. I haven't had a serious job in a long time. And I doubt I ever will because no one would hire me. For, you know, just Google me, Jesus. Uh, but 
the people who are working, people who are getting up in the morning and going and punching, punching in and doing their work and punching out and I don't care if you're in a factory or you're in a cubicle pushing papers around or you're, you know, writing for 14 bucks an hour or whatever you're doing, you're being exploited. They're paying you less than the value of your labor. That's how capitalism works, right? You buy something for less than it's worth. You sell it for more than it's worth. That's a good deal. Um, and as long as those margins are within the realm of decency, then I guess it's not a huge problem, at least in terms of the interpersonal relation. As far as, you know, I mean, how capitalism deals with the natural world is incredible. Just value everything at zero when you take it, like clear-cutting a forest an old growth forest cutting down a 600 year old redwood tree because you've got a cheap lease on the national forest service land that you bought because you paid off some politician and he made sure you'd get that deal that's how it works we all know that but my point is as far as labor goes It's in the interest of the company to pay you as little as possible and extract as much value as possible from you. That's how it works. So if you go to work and, and they're telling you about how you're part of the family and we take care of each other here and we need you to come in on Sunday, um, but, you know, it's just a relationship we have. We're all looking out for each other. That's a fucking lie. And the person who's telling you that probably doesn't even know it's a lie because they're sucked into the same system. But the fact is that the company doesn't care about you. The company doesn't care about anything. The company is incapable of caring. Companies are organisms with no capacity for emotion or compassion, as are governments, states, I don't know, there's a guy named David Icke. I was supposed to go on a speaking tour in South Africa a few years ago, and the organizer was, you know, I was sort of negotiating with the organizer, and, you know, he was going to pay me this much, and I'd be there for three weeks and go to all these different places and whatever. And it was like, I was interested, I'd, you know, go check out South Africa for a while. And then sort of at the last minute he said, oh, I think we've, we're going to combine your speaking tour with uh, another brilliant man from the UK, uh, David Icke. And I looked him up and he's like, David Icke, David Icke. This guy thinks lizards run the world. Are you fucking kidding me? So I backed out of that. Uh, but in a sense, lizards do kind of run the world. I don't think this is how David Icke means it, but the emotional capacity of a corporation is precisely that of a lizard meaning nothing, right? You don't get a pet lizard because you want companionship or you want an animal that's going to like be loyal to you or defend you in a moment of need. <laughs> Someone attacks you. I don't think you can count on the lizard to come to your aid. Um, there's a reason Lassie wasn't a lizard, right? And that's what corporations are. They're, they're, 
without concern for human beings and states. And so that's why reading this thing about, uh, you know, 75% of all the people who've ever lived have been slaves. And that's not even counting the people I described earlier who are just working to survive. States come and take away. They don't want you to have a free way to live. You need to be tied into the system. I wrote about this in Civilized to Death, all these, you know, people living up in the hills. No, no, you can't just live up in the hills shooting your own meat and growing your own vegetables and minding your own business. Minding your own business is not permitted. You must participate. There are taxes to be paid. So I don't know. I Personally, I feel like I've kind of found a way to mind my own business. And uh, I feel very privileged. And uh, a lot of that, to be honest, is because people listening to my voice right now have decided to throw five bucks a month or 10 or 20 or two or one or whatever it is into a tip jar and keep me rolling. And I appreciate that very, very much. Um, but I'm very aware of the fact that there aren't a lot of people with that privilege. And so one of the ways I honor that privilege is by speaking to you as directly and honestly as possible. And I'm sorry if that sometimes annoys you or bores you or frustrates you. Uh, That's certainly not my intention, but it is my intention to be as transparent with you as I possibly can be. On that that note, let let me say something that I... I really should have said a while ago as far as finances go because I know that you know nobody talks about money honestly nobody everybody it's a secret you know everybody keeps it to themselves and talks around the issue I've never understood that I've never felt um I've never felt constrained by those things because I don't I don't care how much money someone makes or has. It I really don't. I know people say they don't, but I really don't. Um as you know if you've listened to this podcast for a while, I've I have a friend who lives on a mega yacht, uh and I've spent some time on the yacht. Uh I have worked in the Diamond District. I've been offered a million dollars to stick around for a year or two. I've I've been in lots of different rooms with lots of different income (laughs) levels and I have learned with no question, no doubt at all that if there is a correspondence between money and happiness, it's inverse uh, within, you know, outside of the extremes. Obviously being homeless is not going to make you happy. Um, but I'm very clear on the value of money and, uh, and most of that value comes at the lower end. You know, it's like I always say, uh, you know, a $2 bottle of wine tastes like shit because with $2, you're not going to get anything. But a $15 bottle of wine is 
for my money, just fine. I've had plenty of $15 bottles of wine, which were fantastic. Uh, I don't need to spend more than 10 or 15 bucks on a bottle of wine ever for the rest of my life. And I feel like that's how, how money is in general. There's a big difference uh, at the bottom, but once you get up off the floor, then it's uh, it's labeling, it's nonsense. Oh, you've got a Hermes bag. Oh, Louis Vuitton. Oh, it's a fucking bag. It's a goddamn bag. The simplest thing that could possibly exist is a bag with a strap that you put over your goddamn shoulder and you put shit in the bag, okay? You're going to pay $700 for that? You're a fucking idiot. That's my feeling. Um, so, what I wanted to say is basically, I make enough money on this podcast to keep the van going. I make between four and five thousand dollars a month I think uh, on your contributions and that's plenty that's fantastic um, it's more than I ever thought I'd make from this and I've got some book royalty money coming occasionally and you know, maybe I'll write another book and make some more money from that but my point is that what tends to happen with me, I'm, I'm kind of like a, like a bucket. And once the bucket gets full to capacity, I don't, I don't get a bigger bucket. It just runs off the sides. So at this point I'm giving away, uh, I don't know, maybe half of what I'm earning on the podcast. Um, I don't want to use names because I don't want, you know, want to expose anyone else, but People in my life, some of whom have been on this podcast, are having a hard time and uh, facing some real challenges. And 500 bucks makes a big difference to them. And uh, so I don't know. They're sending a thousand bucks a month to this person, 500 to this one, a few hundred to this one. Uh, I'm giving a lot of it um, away to people that I meet on the road. Uh, in other words, what I'm saying is you've put me in a position where I feel free to let a lot flow through me and flow onward into the world. And I, uh, I really appreciate that. And I just felt like um, since it's your money, you have a right to know that that's what's happening. I'm not putting it in a bank. I'm not buying gold. I'm not burying it in plastic bags in the backyard. I'm taking what I need uh, to keep fuel in the van and uh, food in the fridge. And the rest of it is just uh, flowing onward. So thank you for that. All right, I think it's time for a song. What do you think? Oh, you agree. Good. This song, uh, I just heard it a couple weeks ago. It really touched me. Love it. It's by a guy named Nick Mulvey, M-U-L-V-E-Y. And the song's called Moment of Surrender. By the way, did I say that uh, Makes Me Want to Holler's by Marvin Gaye? I hope so. Um... I'm sure 98% of you recognize that song and knew it right away, but 
For anyone who didn't, that was Makes Me Want to Holler by or Inner City Blues by Marvin Gaye. And this is Moment of Surrender by Nick Mulvey. I'll be back to you in a moment. I tied myself with wire To let the horses run free Playing with the fire Until the fire played with me Yeah And the stone was semi-precious We were barely conscious Two souls too smart to be in The realm of certainty Even on our wedding day Well, hey, hey We set ourselves on fire could not deny her And it's not if I believe in love But if love believes in me Come on and believe in me At the moment of surrender I folded to my knees I did not notice the passers-by Love 
Did you feel that? Wow, you hear those bees? Um, yeah, there's something about that song that, that feels kind of magical to me. I think it might be the sort of plucking of the mandolin in the background, uh, if that's what that instrument is. It's just something haunting and meditative and contemplative about that song. Moment of Surrender, uh, Nick Mulvey. Hope you enjoyed that. Um, I've been thinking about surrender, and uh, I've been thinking about how so much of the way we envision our lives is is about work. It's about effort. It's it's you know what we might call positive effort, right? Trying to do something. Uh, what is work? What does that word mean, work? I think the most sort of mainstream, acceptable uh, definition would be work is something you do that you would rather not be doing, right? Because otherwise it would be play. Um, it's something that you're obligated to do, maybe in order to survive or in order to get paid or whatever. But as I, I explained in Civilized to Death, hunter-gatherers don't have a word for work because there's really nothing that they do that they don't want to do. Everything is, everything they're doing is immediate. Um, there's immediate meaning and benefit in it. So, you know, if you're hunting, uh, it's because you're hungry and, or you want to, provide for the people you love and who love you and that's gratifying any hunter will tell you that the best part of the hunt is when you sit down with your friends or family and and eat that's the end of the hunt uh, and that's where you see the meaning in in the the work and the skill and all that um you know building a shelter when it starts to rain like that's not work that's keeping us out of the rain hell yeah this is fun this is great this is important but in our lives i think work is generally meaningless right you you go sit in a cubicle and move you know make sure people filled in the the forms correctly i had a job doing this by the way uh that was my job i just went through giant stacks of applications and made sure that uh, you know they hadn't forgotten to sign page 17 and that they had filled in the uh, income requirement properly and that the documentation that was included with the form was the documentation that was needed to demonstrate this and that and the other thing uh, there was nothing immediately gratifying about that and I think that's what most jobs are bullshit jobs uh, book by David Prager, I think his name is. Uh, interesting writer. I'd like to get him on the podcast, actually. Um, but he talks about that, how a great many of the jobs, the vast majority of the, the jobs that people work at are utterly nonsense, not necessary at all. And yet what they do is they rob us of our dignity and our freedom and our creativity. They keep us tired, keep us on our knees. 
Anyway, there's there's another kind of work, which is the work of thinking about things and questioning premises and leaving dubious comfort in search of something deeper and more fulfilling, um, hard conversations with friends that need to be had. Um, there's certainly work that's important and meaningful and necessary. And it's incredible that we use the same word for those two things. Surrender can be work. Surrender can be so much harder than... How can I say this? Letting go can be harder than grabbing. More difficult. I think of an image... Actually, I saw something like this recently. Uh, A young eagle was sort of flying around this area where we were camping. And you could see it was... It was learning. (laughs) Like when it came in for a landing, there was some flapping around and, you know, missed the branch and tumbled a little. And there was definitely some uh, lack of confidence and, and skills that still needed to be refined in this young eagle. And I was watching it one day with binoculars and it it started to, like it, it moved like it was going to take off from this tree, and but it didn't. It held on. And so for a moment it was flapping and holding on and it was almost like it it had forgotten that it was holding on or it was scared it was still scared so it's sort of natural instinctive response was to grip with the talons grip the place it had been even while it was flapping its wings trying to get to where it needed to go I feel in that instant, I I got this sense like that's where so many of us are. Maybe it's where all of us are, always. Always caught between the impulse to flap our wings and go somewhere better and the fear that keeps us clutching where we just were or where we are. And, you know, when you're holding on with your feet and you're flapping with your wings you're not going anywhere but you're using an awful lot of energy and what I was trying to say is that it doesn't matter how hard you flap your wings if you don't let go and I see a lot of people who are under the impression that if they only flap harder they'll learn the thing they need to learn they'll get where they need to go they'll recover from the trauma that they're dealing with at the moment Um, you know they'll advance in their lives they'll move to where they need to be but they don't understand that they're holding on they're clutching so tightly and no amount of flapping is going to release that And so there's a a negative, and when I say negative, I don't mean bad. I mean, you know, you you take a breath, that's the positive. That's the effort. You pull that breath in. 
and then you relax and you just let it go, right? You don't breathe like pull it in, push it out, pull it in, push it out. You pull it in and then you relax and you let it go where it goes. And I feel like we in America especially that make everything work, that see this dignity and work, that's everything... You know, are you working on that salad? Do you do the work? Do you work? Oh, you got to do the work, everybody. You know, you got to work out. No pain, no gain. All this, it's all positive. It's all push, 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 push. And there's no place to just like, no, man, let's stop pushing and let's start focusing on letting go. Let's drop the unnecessary weight we're carrying around, the shame, the guilt, the regret there's no dignity in carrying that around there's no advantage to that it doesn't help anyone so instead of focusing on flapping your wings maybe it's a good time to pay some attention to letting go with your talents Of course, that'll mean something different to every person who hears this. Um, But one very sort of simple, to get back to what I was talking about earlier, one simple way of looking at it is, do you need to make more money? Or do you need to learn to have a better life while you spend less? Right? Making more money is flapping your wings. Uh, simplifying your life is letting go with your talons. It may be that you're already flapping your wings way too hard. And if you let go, you could flap half as hard and fly a lot further. This song's called I Don't Want to Be a Billionaire. And uh, it's by Theo Katzman. I think I've played it on the podcast before. I'm pretty sure I have, actually, because I think Theo sent me an email afterwards. Uh, and turns out we have a friend in common, uh, Clara Stiegel, who's a musician that I guess has played with Theo. They've jammed together or performed together. Um, and then Theo and I talked about getting him on the podcast, but that was back in the pre-COVID days where I only did it in per- in uh, person. And uh, and so he's on a list of people I want to get in a room with someday. Um, but maybe now that, um, now that we're not doing that anymore for a while, uh, I'll get him on next time I have some Wi-Fi. Anyway, this is uh, Theo Katzman. The song's called I Don't Want to Be a Billionaire. Just a couple comfy chairs to sit in a pot 
Lots of reasons you don't want to be a billionaire. Uh, yeah, I wonder how Joe Rogan's going to deal with being a hundred millionaire plus whatever he already has. I hope he's all right. It's going to be it's going to be hard for anyone, uh, but I'm sure knowing him, he's um, he's prepared. He's you know written into the contract that he can do whatever the fuck he wants. I can't imagine him signing a contract that didn't have one of those provisions. Um, but yeah, it's hard. It's hard to be a billionaire. It's hard to be a millionaire. It's hard to have, you know, $50,000 in the bank. It's, it's all hard. No matter where you are, it's hard. Uh, hard for different reasons, hard in different ways. Um, but until everybody has the same, I don't mean in a, hardcore communist kind of way I mean same access to opportunity and that we look at each other we look at at our world as a community in which we take care of one another that's what gets me I'm not saying Bill Gates doesn't have a right to have a billion dollars although I don't really see what's so great about Windows but uh What I'm saying is that we know enough 
and you've heard me talk about this on the podcast before in, in scientific terms, right? There's lots of research showing that, you know, as I was saying earlier, above a certain point, there is no increase in pleasure. There's no increase in security. There's no increase in health. There's no increase in, in anything of true meaning or value above a certain number. Let's say the number is $10 million, Okay. I mean, who needs more than $10 million? I don't care how hard you work. I don't care what amazing idea you had. If there's no value to you in having another 10, 20, 30 million dollars, if we can demonstrate that, that there is no actual value other than, you know, bragging rights or, you know, making your neighbors feel bad or something. If there's no actual value to you, um, then why do you want that? Why do you want that money? I don't understand it. Um, it. It has no value to you, and you know that other people are suffering greatly for the lack of it. People who can't buy medicine for their kids, who don't have a place to live, who can't put gas in their car, who you know that's happening, and yet you're just accumulating more and more and more. How does that not make you feel disgusted with yourself? I, I don't understand it. Um, and I don't say that in some kind of like Jesus-y, uh, you know, I've got all the wisdom kind of way. I just mean on a very practical level. It's like... Um, you know, let's say you're in a restaurant and it's full. There are 100 people in this restaurant. And the waiter comes to you and says, um, oh, you, just through sheer luck or, or maybe because you got here early or whatever, you're sitting in the table where you get to have as much water as you want. Now, we only have 50 gallons of water for everyone in the restaurant. But you, because you're really lucky and you sat in this seat... You can have as much water as you want. How much water do you want? Are you going to say, bring me all 50 gallons and fuck everybody else? That doesn't make sense. You're not going to drink 50 gallons of water. Who needs 50 gallons of water to get through dinner? Nobody. Who needs $50 million to get through life? Nobody. It doesn't make any sense at all. So as long as people are starving as long as people don't have a place to live and i'm not talking about a palace i'm talking about a fucking apartment a tiny house a shelter where they're not in the rain then i don't see how anybody needs 50 million dollars i don't see how any kind of society that calls itself a community allows that to happen it just doesn't make any sense I mean, literally, it's as if some people are hoarding all the food even though it rots and they can't even eat it while other people are starving. Most people are starving. There's something very sick and very wrong about that. Um, okay, let's change the subject. Something a little more interesting, a little more cheerful at least. Uh, I've been thinking about binoculars recently because I bought a nice pair before I came on this trip. There are some things, uh, 
some, I guess, call them technology, uh, that are miraculous. And to me, binoculars are fucking miraculous. They are... If you think about it from a perspective of someone who's never seen binoculars, uh, never looked through binoculars, there's some extraordinary thing that happens. When you put them up to your eyes, it's as if you change locations. Somehow you're right down 500 meters away. You've moved. You Physically, it's almost as if you have you know, stepped into one of those things that beams you to another place suddenly you're somewhere else it's really extraordinary another example of something like that is uh, a couple summers ago I was with uh, a friend who I guess he had a buddy in the military or something and he his buddy lent him some night vision goggles and we took them out. We were in this lake in Oregon, uh, campgrounds around there. And we took them out, and it, it it's like it changes everything. Suddenly you can see in the dark. It's so phenomenal. Um, you know, it's right up there with, like, being able to just flap your arms and fly or breathe underwater or become invisible. It's it's To me, it's, like, on that level of holy shit. Um, yeah, binoculars and night vision goggles and magnets. How the hell do they work? Time for another song. Let's play a song called Two Warm Hands by Out of the Pines. I think I've played this before, but it was probably years ago. And I believe that this was sent to me by a listener. I believe this is an original song by someone who listens to the podcast or at least did listen to the podcast several years ago when they sent me this song. So the band is Out of the Pines and the song is Two Warm Hands. I dig it. Uh, I like the sound of it. I like the feel of it. And I like the fact that it's a reminder to concentrate on the small, simple things that make life so beautiful, so meaningful. And there's really no need to flap harder if you can just let go. Two warm hands, 
Never thought I'd be a beggar here with nothing left out here to lose. Never thought there would come a day, but I know we're all beggars in this world. Oh, how I know we're all beggars in this world. Oh, wish I had two warm hands and friends by the fire. I wish I held a good woman to wrap me in and comfort. I have you holy nights Singing songs to the Savior But we lose our faith in the coldest winds When all our prayers go unanswered I'm just a heart of simple man Who's holding out for better Through the fall of our storms In the heart of winter But I'll sing for the seldom few Who have to wild knuckles through Your heart nights were mine too Your heart nights were mine too And I'll sing for the seven of you Who had to wire knuckles through Your heart nights were mine too Your heart nights were mine too
I believe that at the beginning of this, Roma, I said I was going to talk to you about movies and books and things that I've been uh, absorbing, and I totally forgot about it uh, until now. I'm actually back. It's the next day. I deleted the goodbye that I recorded yesterday and uh, decided to extend this a little bit longer and talk about some of that stuff. Um, it's interesting, you know, I'm I'm out here in the middle of nowhere, not looking at the news, not keeping up with the latest Trump-pocracy, Trump-idiocy, Trump-ocalypse news, and, um, and it allows me to sort of you know turn my mind to a lot of other things it's amazing i've uh you know in the last week i've probably read two or three books and seen a couple of interesting films and uh just you know it's amazing where your mind can go when you're not obsessing over what feel like very immediate panic inducing developments um so along those lines, what have I done? Well, I watched Louis C.K.'s latest stand-up special, uh, which you can download from his website. It's not on Netflix or anyway, because Louis C.K., of course, is uh, persona non grata, since he jerked off in front of women with their permission, which they retroactively decided was not actually permission. Um Look, I'm not a huge Louis C.K. Uh, supporter in terms of his creepiness. Um, I, it, for me, it's kind of... I mean, I guess I am. Maybe I am. I don't know. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think what he did as far as jerking off in front of people was weird, for sure. Um, but as he says, we all have our thing, right? We all have our thing that turns us on and he makes a big uh it's a part of his act his stand-up act um that you see in the special where he's like oh, look you go you all have your thing right the only difference is you all know what my thing is everyone knows what my thing is obama knows what my thing is right um but we don't know what obama's thing is uh and he also says uh you know i like jerking off and i don't like being alone so <laughs> So there's that. Um, but there's a reason we don't know what Obama's thing is, which is that Obama, or you know, presumably, uh, engages in his thing with Michelle and uh, perhaps with other people uh, with Michelle's involvement or permission or whatever. Um, and there's a level of, uh, I don't want to say intimacy, because I don't think sex necessarily needs to be intimate. Um, but there's a level of awareness and trust. And um, there's a level of relation with the other people so that you know that you're not invading their headspace you're not making them uncomfortable because the fact is that people agree to things that they don't actually agree to because they're being agreeable and i think women especially tend to do this because women are raised to not cause a stink and not get in people's way especially men's way and not 
Um, be obstructive. Don't be a downer. Come on. I thought you were one of the guys. Um, and so as a guy, I think it's incumbent upon us to understand that and to understand that as frustrating as that may be, as confusing as that may be, women have been raised in this society to often agree to things that they don't really want to agree to. And if you're interested in having your interaction with women be truly participatory in the sense that you're both participating, um, then you need to be especially careful about that. You need to really investigate a little bit. And, uh, I'm not saying that I've never made a miscalculation. I'm not saying that uh, there haven't been women in my life who may have agreed to interact with me in ways that maybe they didn't uh, really want to in the moment or that later they looked back and said, hmm, I wish I hadn't agreed to that or whatever. But, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there aren't. But... Um, the point is that it's a conversation. I've often said, if you can't talk about sex, you really shouldn't be having it. And unfortunately, our society makes talking about sex so shameful, so difficult, so awkward, so weird, um, that often people prefer to just get kind of drunk and fuck and, and never talk about it, never explore it which is unfortunate in lots of different levels. Uh, obviously, the, the most immediate level that we're talking about in light of Louis C.K. is that you can end up abusing someone without meaning to. And I think that's the case here. I think in many of these cases, that's what happens. It's Yes, there is abuse. Yes, there is an abuse of power. But that was not the intention. And so it's... Uh, very unfortunate situation where everybody ends up being a victim. And I think the only way to avoid these situations is to diminish the importance of sex in the sense that it's easier to talk about. Because we make this such a big deal and we empower the a sexual interaction so much that the exact same interaction that doesn't involve sex we don't consider any big deal at all but the fact that a penis appeared in the room suddenly makes it traumatic and and criminal and and you know career ending uh dicks are dicks dicks are not magical wands they're they're not they don't have you know magical powers they can't you know you get touched with a dick you know a nice girl turns into a whore it, it doesn't work that way uh you know you get touched with a dick a straight guy turns into a gay guy it doesn't work that way dicks are not magical and i think men and women uh would do well to wrap their heads around that to to reduce the dick to what it is which is kind of a ridiculous pathetic appendage um you know guys you know, having a bigger dick is not going to make women like you more. 
uh, a dude whose dick is bigger than you fucks your girlfriend. She's not going to leave you for him because he has a bigger dick. Dicks aren't like that. And men and women both all of us endow them with this incredible magical power that they just don't have. But because we've endowed it, well endowed, uh, with that power, then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If you believe that a nice girl who has a dick in her then becomes a dirty, worthless slut, then in your head, that's exactly how it's going to play out. It's not true, it's not true. It's not true in the external world. There's nothing about her coming into contact with a dick that changes who she is. But if you have that belief structure, then in your head it changes who she is. And you know what? In addition to being an extreme violation of her, it's a shame for you too because now you're dividing the world into nice girls and girls who have sex which means you can never have sex with a nice girl, which means you are doomed to a lonely fucking life, dude, because every woman who has sex with you or who had sex with other men before she met you or who's had sex with anyone or wants to have sex with, that's not a good person. That's not someone you, should, you, you can relate to and respect. Well, you've just painted yourself into a very, very tight corner there, a very lonely corner. And in addition to the fact that it's totally shooting yourself in the foot, it's just not true. Just like it's not true that a, you know, 15 or 16-year-old guy who's never had sex has sex and it makes him a man. No, that's not what a man is. A man is not a boy who's put his dick in a girl. That isn't a man. We need to really think through these things. I hate that phrase, you know. Oh, she made him a man. No, she didn't. She fucked him. That's all. Oh, he took her virginity. He took it? Where'd he go with it? What'd he do with it? Did that make him a virgin now? Or can he go give that virginity to some other woman who's been fucking a lot? And now she, poof, she's a virgin. Because I took it from her and I gave it to you. What are we talking about? So, to me, Louis C.K.'s mistake, uh, ironically, given that what he does for a living is communicate and, and write and think and refine his thoughts, his, his mistake, his transgression is that he didn't talk and that he didn't have this experience with women he really knew. And I guess maybe that's part of the thrill, right, that, that uh, these chicks I hardly know watch me jerk off but if that's the thrill dude talk to your therapist about that because that's not cool there's nothing wrong with jerking off in front of women there's nothing wrong with you know all kinds of bizarre weird shit what's wrong is imposing that on someone who really doesn't know what they're getting into and in being totally oblivious to the fact that you're a fucking big star and that one of the reasons that these people hang out with you is because you're a big star and that they're hoping that hanging out with you is going to result in some kind of uh, professional uh, advance for them. I mean, these are all pretty obvious points. 
So to me, Louis C.K.'s mistake is not that he jerked off in front of people. It's that he was dumb about it. Similar to Chris D'Elia's thing. I don't think there's really nothing I've read that he did is truly a big deal. Uh, some 17-year-old chick, you know, that said that uh, she was into him, loved his work, and would love to see him next time he's in town. And he's like, hell yeah, let's do it. In the meantime, why don't you send me some pictures? He didn't know she was 17. All he knew was she was hot. And next thing you know, he's being called a pedophile. In writing. Some of the articles I read about his thing described him as a pedophile. For the record, a pedophile is a person who is sexually attracted to prepubescent children. That's the definition. Prepubescent. 17-year-old girl is not prepubescent by any stretch of the imagination. That's the definition, okay? There's no way that anything that Chris D'Elia did qualifies as pedophilia. And yet, that's the word being thrown at him, and he can't defend himself or has been advised not to. Again, the problem here is communication. The problem is, hey, why do you want to hang with me? How old are you? What are you into? Do you have a boyfriend? What's your deal? Who are you? I guess that's it. It's the, it's the lack of concern with who it is we're having these relationships with, who it is we're having these experiences with, even if it's not a relationship. Who is this person? And how is your presence in their life, as minimal as it may be, how is it affecting them? And my thing with women has always been, I want to, it, it's important for me that my presence in your life is a net positive. It's a little speech I've given lots of times, and I mean it. And it does, see, the reason I say a net positive is like, I know it's not always totally positive. There are women I've gotten involved with where I was like, you know, listen, I'm not available for, to be your boyfriend. It's just not, that's not a possibility. Um, and so if that's a deal breaker, I get it. And she, she says, no, it's not a deal breaker. That's totally cool. Let's hang out. Okay. But it's important to me as this develops to know that my presence is always a net positive for you. It, there's more good feeling than bad feeling because bad feeling comes about because often one of the people wants is starting to fall in love or thinks they're in love. They want a deeper relationship, but they don't want to say anything because they know you've already had that talk. And if they say something, you're going to leave. Um, there's always a mixture of positive and negative. And so I think it's really important to talk about those things openly. And also, I mean, sex is great. Sex is important. I've, you know, spent a lot of my life thinking and writing about sex and talking about it. And honestly, I feel like the majority of the pleasure from sex comes from thinking about it beforehand 
remembering it afterwards, talking about it. It's not it's not just the act itself. It's not the the moments in which your bodies are enacting that ancient dance. It's it's the light that it casts on the rest of your life. And so if you're not talking about it, if you're not having these conversations, you're missing a lot of the potential intimacy and thrill and juiciness of what sex is. It's like, I don't know, it's like eating. It's, it's like if, if your only interaction with eating is you just like get so fucking hungry, you got to eat something, then you eat, and then it's over. And you're like, okay, now I don't need to eat anymore. Now I'm going to go think about something else. It's like these people who, you know, who live on goop or whatever the fuck it's called, and they think they're like cutting edge, you know, Silicon Valley, blah, blah. like, oh, I don't, I don't have time to eat. I don't have time to think about food. I just like suck this goop out of this fucking tube and got all my nutritional needs taken care of okay good for you well tell you what you're missing out on life dude because there's a lot of pleasure in eating that does not involve your mouth does not involve swallowing does not involve gastric juices it involves thinking it involves knowing where the food came from it involves preparing the food it involves growing the food it can involve hunting for the food it can involve so much so many different processes it can involve lighting candles and setting a table and anticipating the arrival of your friends and choosing what music you're going to play at this party tonight and who's coming and if so-and-so is going to like so-and-so. And I mean, they're all, there's all the meaning around eating a meal can be 50 times richer than the meal itself. It doesn't matter what the meal is in a way. It can be tacos. It can be fucking steaks. It can be burgers. It can be curry. It the point is what's happening around that experience. And when we fail to do that because of fear or hang-ups or shame, we're depriving ourselves of the vast majority of the, of the experience, of the potential experience. So talk about sex before you have it, while you're having it, after you're having it. That's the joy. That's the beauty. That's where you learn stuff. That's where the juice is. That's my advice. Advice from Uncle Chris. Um, what else? I'm reading a book called uh, Against the Grain. I just finished it this morning, Against the Grain. And it turns out there are two books called Against the Grain that were published in the last few years. This one's by James Scott. And I think the subtitle is A Deep History of the Early States, something like that. Quite interesting. Uh, it's one of those books that I should have read before I wrote Civilized to Death. It came out while I was writing Civilized to Death. I was aware of it. I, I actually downloaded it to my Kindle and looked at it and decided, you know, if I just keep reading stuff, 
that relates to this because everything re- relates to civilized today. If I keep reading stuff, I'm never going to finish writing this fucking book and I got to like pull up the drawbridge and close the gates and finish this thing. So I didn't read it. It's a little weird reading it now. There's so much in it that I would have incorporated in civilized to death. Um, it's, uh, it's, he also wrote, uh, the art of not being governed, uh, James Scott did, which I did quote from pretty extensively in civilized to death. So if he happens to see it, he at least knows I'm, I didn't ignore his work. Um, his argument is that the early civilizations uh, basically were all about um, uh, manpower, that they, the most precious commodity that was traded, sought after, accumulated, were, was slaves. Um, and often that took the form of actual slaves who were captured and put in shackles and brought back to the either the periphery of the civilization where they were worked in mines or forestry or um, you know menial, difficult, dangerous labor, or they were brought back to the center where they were household slaves or concubines or laborers in the city um and it's it's very interesting reading his work with the framework that i have of of civilization as an organism that sort of sprouts um and spreads and and consumes and and you know has a life force and a lifespan because you see that these early states they all sprung up in exactly the same kinds of places. They had to be along a waterway. There had to be very rich soil, which generally um, came from repeated flooding and receding of the waters. So it was sort of alluvial uh, soil. Um, there had to be uh, a triggering event that's normally a climactic event, um, sudden contraction in, in resources. I, I talk about all this in Civilized to Death, but um, he goes into it in, in much deeper, uh, much greater depth. I have also uh, just finished reading a book called The Overstory, uh, which won the Pulitzer Prize, um, I think, last year. It's, it's a very recent book. Uh, fascinating. A very interesting book. It's a novel, uh, and it's hard to talk about um, because I don't want to ruin it for anyone who who may decide to read it. Um, it's got some very innovative structural um, qualities that, if I talk about it too much, I'd have to tell you about, and that would. Um, yeah, that would affect your experience in reading it. So let me just say that it's it's lots of different characters, lots of different situations, all um, you know, probably from nineteen hundred to present. Um, and all of the situations and the characters and the stories that that are in this book involve trees, 
in one way or another. And uh, yeah, it's really interesting to the way he incorporates so much knowledge, so much information about trees into a novel. Um, so you're reading about people and things happening and characters developing and, you know, relationships and all that. But in the meantime, you're learning a shit ton about trees, how trees interact, um, the, the role of different types of trees and history, um, how trees propagate, uh, how humans have interacted with trees in, in so many different ways. It's in some ways, it's a hard book to read because it's almost, and, and man, this is definitely, you know, my very uh, specific perspective on things. But I read this book and I was like, man, this is like a, a novelistic um, telling of Civilized to Death. It's the same thing. We're talking about what the fuck are we doing, right? And I think so many books and songs and works of art that's the central question that animates them and I think we're going to see more and more of that um, I should also say jumping back to the previous um, conversation against the grain James Scott's book he talks a lot about the collapse of civilizations so it's very interesting reading that you know, the, you know, the collapse of the Sumerian, the collapse of the Mayan, the collapse of Rome, the collapse of this and that. And he says, you know, we call it that because archaeologists love the, the artifacts. They love the sites and, the, and they like, oh, there are all these beautiful buildings and all this stuff. And then suddenly, you know, it was empty. It was gone. There are no signs of anyone after a certain date. And, you know, everything was burned and all that. And and so you get this sense of, oh, it must have been horrible, the collapse. But, but his point is that most people were slaves. I, I didn't finish the point I was making earlier. He argues that 75% of everybody who's ever lived has been a slave. And that the collapse of the civilization is actually a really good thing for most people. Because then they can just go back to the woods and, and live the way they had been. Um, so there's a bright side to current historical trends um you know it sort of makes me think about this idea of the life raft and buying land and you know creating a place where people can come and interact with each other and save each other and we can save ourselves by saving each other which is the only way it ever works of course um that seems to be what happens when civilizations collapse People leave the centers either because of epidemic or because of political turmoil or um, drought or flood or what have you. They leave the, the major metropolis um, because the metropolis loses the political power to keep them there. And they go off into the hinterlands and live much better lives than they were living previously. So collapse might not be such a bad thing for most of us going to suck for the Bill Gateses and the Elon Musks and the Jeff Bezoses. Um, but for you and me, collapse could uh, end up being an improvement. So there's that. Uh, anyway, the overstory is 
kind of a downer in some ways because you know you're reading about these last stands of ancient trees that just get cut down for nothing for fucking toilet paper by the way is there a bigger scam than toilet paper if you've traveled to southeast asia for example in indonesia i'm and i'm sure i've talked about this on the podcast before next to a toilet there's a little squirt thing little uh like those squirt things that are by the sink where you wash the dishes and you spray them off. Uh, you've already got water there. There's water going into the toilet. You got your water pressure. So you just put a little squirt thing on there and you just squirt your ass when you're done. Boom, done. No paper. No mess. No problem. You don't want to touch your ass like they do in India with wiping it with your fingers. Okay, fine. Just squirt your ass. Boom, you're done. Paper? Why are we cutting down forests of trees for something that's clearly inferior? I'm telling you, a paper-wiped ass versus a water-squirted ass, no competition. It's a sentence I never thought I would say, certainly not in public, but there you go. So if you're putting in a toilet, put in one of those squirter things and say goodbye to toilet paper, save a fucking tree says an author who publishes books written on paper but i think that's a better use of paper than you know the squirt is like the kindle of toilet papers save a tree get a kindle squirt your ass all right the overstory so now i've talked about the overstory what else did i need to talk to you about i'm going to pause and think about this all right i covered a lot of what i wanted to say uh i'm going to end this by responding to an email that somebody sent me uh, not too long ago. I don't remember what the guy's name is. I just copied and pasted it in my little notes thing here. He said, I think it's fair to say the world is pretty fucked up right now. Today in particular was really strange. I sat down as usual to work at what David Graeber would call a bullshit job. David Graeber wrote a book called Bullshit Jobs. I think I mentioned it earlier. Uh, I do analytic consulting work for a company that regularly shits on the environment and sells overpriced generic products. Goddamn. If there's a hell, it's working for a company that does shit that you don't believe in. And I know that's what most people do. Uh, And I don't blame anyone. That's what most people have to do because those are the companies that exist. Not everyone can work for Patagonia. Uh, Yeah, okay. Anyway, I couldn't help but think how weird it was that as the world is stumbling from crisis to crisis, here I am doing the same old somewhat morally hazy bullshit. Pretty much insulated, but I realize that my baseline is off. I'm not only insulated, I'm only insulated until a crisis affects me. This reality caused me to get a little anxious, and I couldn't help but thinking about the sources of my anxiety, namely the the consumption of mainstream media. So my question to you, as a man far older than me, he's 23, and as someone I respect, is should I try to divorce myself from reality? This doesn't seem like the best solution because I don't want to bury my head in the sand. But facing reality seems to bring about the awareness of my own complete lack of control, which sucks too. 
It's an interesting conundrum. Yes, it is. When I read this, my first reaction was to question the premise, right? Now, what's the premise here? The premise is that there's such a thing as reality, that there's one reality, and he's wondering whether he should divorce himself from it or remain in direct contact with it. And the fact is that there are an infinite number of realities, and um, some of them demand our attention more than others, that's true. Um, some of them can impact our experience more directly than, than others, that also is true. But I think that to a very, to, to an unappreciated, underappreciated extent, Our reality is shaped by our perception of reality. And this is certainly not an original thought. Everyone from Gandhi to Buddha to Jesus to Einstein has has made the same point. Um, But I think especially today when we're we're living in, in a world that is... I mean, a social world, a a techno-social world that is hungrier than ever for our attention. It pays to think very carefully about what we do with our attention. Because essentially, Kristen, what's his name? Tristan Harris um, has written about this and spoken about it. He's the the guy who worked at Google um, as the in-house ethicist and then quit, and, and now he does all the stuff about um, trying to get people to see that apps are designed, they're not, they're not tools that are um, neutral, that they're actually designed to be attention parasites. They're designed like the color schemes and the delay from when you click on something and it pops up and the way things flash and change and the fonts and the shapes and the whole everything about these things is designed to attract and then hold your attention because as as he explains everything that happens online is an attention economy it's all about eyeballs, right? It's all about getting you to look at a web page or to stay in this app so that the ads that come by every fourth or fifth post generate more revenue for the company because there are more eyeballs there. Everything is designed. It's quicksand for your attention. The minute you look at it, it's designed to hold you. It's sticky. It doesn't want you to look away. But meanwhile, the seconds and minutes and hours and days and weeks and months and years of your life are ticking by. And you are being farmed, basically, for your attention. There are parasites sucking your attention like blood out of your body. 
And so it's extremely important to think about what do we mean when we say reality, this reality that's consuming my attention, this reality that is um, making me anxious. Um, there's a reality. My reality is an ant is running around on my legs and my keyboard right now, and it's annoying me. Um, so what is this reality that we're talking about? Because, look, I'm sitting here right now in my little camping chair, which, by the way, I have gone through so many different camping chairs. I could be a camping chair reviewer for sure. And I think I found my favorite. Uh, I'll stand up and tell you what it is. It's a Alps Mountaineering. Uh, it's a squat little thing. Cost forty nine ninety five. Where I bought it, and uh, it's not super lightweight, so it's not something you'd want to take backpacking. But for the kind of stuff I do, you know, car camping, just hanging out, it seems to be the most stable and the most uh, robust. Uh, that's an interesting little divergence. Um, where was I? The uh, Yeah, the reality is what you're perceiving. So I'm sitting here looking out at this lake. I'm listening to the waves wash up on the rocks down on the beach. As soon as I finish this, I'm going to go jump in the water. Uh, I got enough food. I've got enough water. Um I'm pretty well set up right now. I feel fine. I'm, I've got some people I love around. I got enough money in the bank to put some diesel fuel in the truck. I don't need to pay rent. I'm not paying a mortgage. That's my reality. Now, I can turn from that immediate reality and say, oh, my God, Trump is destroying constitutional democracy in America. Uh and then I can expand on that and say, yeah, but it's not really Trump. Trump is a symptom of a deeper problem that's been happening since the 80s. Trump is the bitter fruit of a tree that's been we've allowed to grow right here in our backyards. Uh, this selfishness, this this brutal disregard for the concerns of other people. And then I can expand on that and say, yeah, but there's this pandemic happening and it's causing great suffering, but it's also exposing the fault lines in American culture. It's exposing the fact that a lack of uh, universal basic income is devastating and is going to cause revolution and destruction. Uh, and the powers that be want, want stability more than anything. They want to just keep doing what they're doing so if the shit's going crazy and stuff's burning in the streets that's going to cause a problem for them they don't want that uh also access to health care for everyone is obviously necessary the pandemic is making that clear it's making clear the incompetence the absolute abdication of governance happening in washington right now which is the only way things are going to improve is to actually see the problem hit rock bottom. And then I could say, yeah, but still the environment is being destroyed. Uh, even with this pause in global economic production, we're still on a glide path toward oblivion. I mean, I could think about, there's so many different things I could be thinking about and they're all true and they're all real. And 
It's up to me. It's my choice. So this guy is 23 years old. I would say try to look at your immediate world. In other words, yes, there's a lot of shit going on out there in the world, but it sounds to me like your immediate problem is that you have a shitty job that you don't respect. Why? That you're doing something that you feel ashamed of, that you feel... Why are you selling yourself so cheap? Now, if the answer to that is, look, I'm doing this job because by the end of the year, I'm going to have enough money to start my own business doing this thing I really love doing or to finance learning a skill that I really want to learn that I know I'm good at and I can make a living doing or that I'm going to go travel and see a part of the world that I really want to see and that's why I'm doing this bullshit job, then fine, do it. That's great. I've done a lot of that too. That's different from here I am, this is my life. And the best thing I can hope for is that I'm going to get a raise and I might get that corner office someday in this shitty building doing this shitty shit for this shitty company. That's no life. So you're 23. What I would say to you is, first of all, Arrange your life so that you have maximal freedom to fall on your face, to be broke, to take risks that don't work out. And what that means is don't get anybody pregnant. Put that off. You got 10, 20 years before you need to think about that if you even really want to have kids. I think the best thing you can do for the world for the environment is don't have kids. Coincidentally, I think it's the best thing you can do for yourself. Now, I don't mean to offend people who have kids. I know you love them. They're beautiful. They're wonderful kids. Super smart. Great. They bring meaning to your life. I know. I know. I know. But I'm not saying get rid of the kids you have. I'm just saying don't have them in the first place. And yes, there are experiences that you will not have, but there are other experiences that you will have. And if you're on the fence about it, don't do it. The world does not need more people. The world needs far fewer people. So we're all going to die. We got that covered. And if you don't have kids, then you've done your part. Um, so my, my response to this guy is deal with your immediate reality. Don't worry about the world. Your problem isn't the world. I mean, the world is a problem. But right now, your problem is that even if everything were going great out in the world, you still wouldn't be having fun. Because you're still going into that shitty job, working at that shitty company. And no matter how great things are out in Australia or Europe, or I don't know where you are, but... uh, you're still going to be unhappy. So choose the reality you want to focus on. Choose the one that immediately affects you. Choose the one where you're looking at the quality of your daily life. And how can you affect that? Because you can't change the fact that the coral reefs are bleaching. 
There's nothing you can do about that. It's worth knowing about. It's worth grieving over. But there's nothing you can do about it. So I think the amount of time and effort that you put toward that should only be that which is required to acknowledge its existence. The time and effort, the bulk of your time and effort should go toward improving your immediate existence. Think locally and act locally. Deal with your friendships. Deal with the food you eat. Deal with where you live. Deal with where you work. Deal with the absence of meaning in your life right now. If, in fact, that's what's going on. Um, That's my advice. And, you know, you say the last sentence of of this email was, but facing reality seems to bring about the awareness of my own complete lack of control, which sucks. See, that's the thing. You're choosing to look at that reality, which you can't control, rather than the reality which you can control. And then you say, oh, shit, I have no control. I'm stuck. No, dude, you're not stuck. Because there's a reality right next to you that you're looking past. And that reality you can control. And that reality ultimately will have far more effect on how you feel about your life. It's possible to have a good time on a sinking ship. I'm doing it right now. I know the ship is sinking. It breaks my heart. But I've looked at it and said, okay, what can I do? Well, A, I can not have kids bring them onto the sinking ship. And B, I can try to have a good time and I can try to help other people have a good time while this happens. Because a lot of us are going to die before the ship goes under anyway. We're not all going to die when the ship goes down. I'll already be dead. (laughs) Probably. And maybe you will too. And as James Scott said, sometimes when the ship sinks, people float off to islands and live a much better life than they were living on the ship of civilization. So who knows how this is going to play out. And Man, if it plays out that, hey, you know, Western civilization collapses and we all end up living in, in small villages and growing our own food and hunting and raising some animals and loving each other and taking care of each other and uh, living way better than we've been living until now. Well, aren't we going to look back and feel fucking foolish for not having a good time during the transitional process? We've all, no matter how bad the world is, each one of us has been endowed with this incredible fucking opportunity, this incredible gift of being alive and being conscious and being intelligent and being capable of love and being worthy of love. That's the reality that we need to be looking at. Not denying anything, not ignoring anything like this fucking fly that's buzzing around me. I'm aware of it, but I'm choosing to only give a little of my attention to it. Because this connection with you is much, much more important than that fucking fly. Although another thing that I'm going to talk about uh, is for camping is electrified tennis rackets that you can use to eliminate mosquitoes and flies. And when you get one, oh, it's an amazing crack that it makes. Very satisfying sound. 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's enough of my dime store wisdom for today. I hope you enjoy this aroma. I hope that it satisfies the itch for those of you who've been calling for another aroma. And um, I hope you found something of value in here. I'm going to play you out with one of my favorite songs. I think that, you know, one of the underappreciated keys to understanding great art is that often great art is funny. And because we approach it as great art, um, we're not looking for a joke. We're taking it very, very seriously. Uh, Moby Dick is an example. Moby Dick is a really funny book. But everyone who reads it is like, oh, it's a classic, the great American novel. It was assigned to me in sophomore literature class. So everybody's like, oh, you know, and it's, it's it's some weird language and all that. It's funny as fuck. Ulysses, funny. Huckleberry Finn, hilarious. Very serious, too. It's talking about slavery, racism, class warfare, child abuse, and there's some heavy shit in Huckleberry Finn. And by the way, if you haven't read Huckleberry Finn ever, or you only pretended to read it in sixth grade or something, or you actually did read it in sixth grade, please go read it again. That book was not written for children. It's it's a bittersweet honor that the book is assigned in so many, you know, middle school classes because everyone's familiar with it. But you got to be an adult. You got to read it as an adult to understand what the fuck is going on there. It's an amazing piece of work. Mark Twain was just an amazing guy. I love Mark Twain. Um, anyway, my point is when you miss the joke, uh, often you miss the whole fucking point. Uh, and I think a lot of rap is hip hop is not here's 58 year old white guy telling you about hip hop. All right. Uh, I think we miss that a lot of hip hop is really funny that it's making fun of personas. It's making fun of, um, you know, the angry black man. It's making fun of the braggadocio related to, to hip-hop, like Too Short. I mean, too, if you listen to I'm a Player by Too Short, it's misogynistic. It's, it's, it's like hateful in many ways. But that's only because you don't understand that he's joking. He's making fun of the character that he's playing. You know, Simon Rex plays uh, Dirt Nasty is his character, the rapper. Simon is not Dirt Nasty. Simon is nothing like Dirt Nasty. Dirt Nasty's up on stage, swilling tequila, drunk, I don't give a fuck. Kind of like my dick is his big, the big hit. He and... Uh, uh, his his partner, I forget his name, uh, Mickey Avalon. That you know they have. Um, Simon's not like that. Simon's a really smart, sharp, decent, careful, thoughtful dude. I mean, I don't even think Simon drinks. I hope I'm not ruining anything for Simon. 
That's a character he plays. Too Short is a character that he's playing. Um, so uh, I was going to play. I was thinking about playing "So Clean, So So Fresh, So Clean" by Outkast, um, but I'm afraid, like everybody knows that song, and also I don't, I don't, I try not to play songs that are really well known um, because I don't want to trigger any kind of you know lawyer sending me cease and desist letters. Um, so I'm going to play another song in the same genre of the rap song that is making fun of certain uh, tropes that are common in in hip-hop. This song is called Mississippi, and it's by Afro Man. Fair warning, if you are easily offended, you might want to just stop listening right now. Um, also, if you are listening to this at work or in a place where um, people might be around who should not hear offensive, <laughs> potentially offensive language, I don't know why you'd be doing that because God knows I say weird shit that you shouldn't be playing at work. Um, but um, Afro Man certainly does. So if either of those conditions pertain, uh, you might want to just stop this right now before Afro Man starts telling you about uh, how things were down in Mississippi. All right. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Mississippi. I got my Greyhound ticket right here, man. I'm finna go back and kick it with my family, cuz. Please take me back home. Take a couple pounds of this weed. To Mississippi. Mississippi. Smell me, homeboy. Yeah, take them fools back yeah. to 82, cuz. Before South Central, Palmdale Flossin. I stayed in a place called Palmer's Crossing. Hattiesburg, Hattiesburg. Mississippi. Mississippi. Smoking marijuana like a Woodstock hippie. All my homies in Lauro. Beg, borrow. Buy my rap tape tomorrow. What? Tell DJ Pumpkin, keep it crunk and Clyde. Clyde. Request my tape when you go inside. So I can take Jane and Curro to Waynesboro. Fuck they little home girl. Make her toes curl. Rock they world leave with a auntie Cheryl. she sucks me sucks me fucks me fucks me cries every time i leave biloxi but i hops in the coop because i got to go another hoe from two below hit it once hit it twice then i hit it again hit it in meridian make the bitch rubber clit again piss the nipples on her tit again suck my dick until she spit again Please take me back home. Hell yeah. To Mississippi. Crooked letter, crooked letter, hump back, hump back. Afro man's the bomb, bump that. Please take me back home. Hell yeah. To Mississippi. From the Delta to the coast, I'm doing the most. Grab your 40 ounce, less toast. I sold rock cocaine down in LSB. LSB. Hit the pipe, they can tell it's real. Tell it's real. Get my dope stashed with this hoochie. Way down yonder in East. The Bucci cops be sweating out of town, down dog. in my car with the hound dog. Separate me from my bitch and shit. Trying to get my bitch to fucking snitch and shit. Uh. Officer Roscoe Pico train. Yeah. Running warrant checks on the Afro main. Uh. But I can't beat no hip hop star. Yeah. Cuffed in the back of some police car. Did you find the guns? No. Though? Did you find the dope? No. Open up the back door. Dope. Well, son, you're free to go. go. AFRO. Oh. Marijuana cargo. Lost like a cholo. In a clean low, low, come on, let's all get drunk tonight. Drunk tonight. I hope I don't fight with the punk tonight. Get nervous, nervous. as I swerve this what? Cadillac through Purvis. Yeah. Hope I don't crash when I 
my fro. I was dumb, now I'm dumber, y'all. Last summer, y'all. Bust all the little girls down in summer, raw. Grabbed my guitar and started picking a tune. For Nikki and June, down in Picayune, baby. Just like a shovel, I be digging. Digging. All the pretty young women in Wiggins. On the boat. On the boat. Guppo. I got my dick down some girl throat. Can't help it, I'm a crip, baby. Uh, I think you need to wipe your lip, baby. Uh, hula, 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 hula. The whole house ruler. Yeah. What's up to all the bitches down in Pascagoula? Small towns, small cities, but they still got big old asses plus titties. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? It's the hungry hustler, Afro Man. Flying through the air in my underwear. underwear. Jerry Curl activator in my hair. I'm in control like Janet when I hit Jackson. Uh. Always getting plenty panty action. Yeah. McLean, even Macomb. Tell the whole world Mississippi's your home. Yazoo, Columbia, Natchez. Natchez. I got the weed brother who got the matches. Who got the funky DJ that scratches. Depend on me like my name was Patches. Yeah. It was a black thing, just the big willies. Now I roll fillies with all the hillbillies. Never ever thought I'd see the Ku Klux Klan buying front row seats for the Afro man. Afro Confederate man. flag, tobacco in they mouth. It's a beautiful thing, jumping off in the south. Afro man, I'm a part of it. Hattiesburg hip hop, I'm the start of it. Start of I'm the it. latest. latest. I'm the greatest. greatest. And all you haters, haters. I mash you like potatoes. Yeah. I make your girlfriend holler and scream. Then cook me some cornbread and collard greens. Please take me back home. Hell yeah. To Mississippi. Crooked letter, crooked letter, hump back, hump back. Afro man's the bomb. Bump that. Please take me back home. From the Delta to the coast, I'm doing the most. Grab your 40 ounce, let's toast. 1982, 83, 84, Aaron, Broski, Carlos, and Tonto. Trying to break dance in my B-Boy stance. B-boy stance. Michael Jackson glove, parachute pants. Calvin Gary, Garnett Jones. G-Dawg, cuz I don't believe we grown. Yeah. But hey, G-Dawg, you and me a C-Dawg. Whatever happened, cuz, you and me, dawg. Or should I say low? low. Cause you my folks. Folk. So let's take a tote, tote till we croak. Cause Croc. I'm a lobster, lobster, honey spokester. Drinking every day like I'm Supposed to bottle up the bottle, dog in my liver, blowing on the mic like the Mississippi River. Please take me back home. Hell yeah, to Mississippi. Crooked letter, crooked letter, hump back, hump back. Afro man's the bomb, bump that. Please take me back home. Get on down to Mississippi. From the coast to the Delta, Afro, we felt you, boy. You're so cold, the sun can't melt you. Please take me back home. Crooked letter, crooked letter, hump back, hump back, Afro man's the bomb, bump that. Please take me back home. Get on down. To From the coast to the Delta, Afro, we felt you, boy, you're so cold, the sun can't melt you. Please take me back home. We out of here. To Mississippi.